previously on The Florida Files. Yahweh Ben Yahweh was born Hulan Mitchell Jr. and grew up in Oklahoma. A one-time member of the Nation of Islam, Yahweh's group claimed they were the true Jews. For years, they remained clouded in mystery. In Miami, Mel Taylor, Channel 10, Eyewitness News. So you were hooked. You were hooked. You were hooked. I, I was hooked from, I was hooked before day one. So he was searching for his father Yahweh while his father Yahweh was yet searching for his son. After he creates the Mother Church, the Temple of Love, Yahweh Ben Yahweh is a colorful fixture in the Miami community. His disciples are familiar on the streets too, dressed like their leader in white robes and turbans. When not canvassing local neighborhoods, passing out literature and collecting money, the Yahwehs travel together in a fleet of buses emblazoned with the name Yahweh on the sides. members who have elected to give up their jobs and homes and live and work to become full-time Yahweh followers in the Temple of Love, the sprawling warehouse that they have fixed up in the heart of the riot zone. And it takes up an entire city block of Miami's Liberty City. So if you're tired of suffering in America, and you're ready to return to your own God, Yahweh, and you're ready to submit to Yahweh as your God and be a part of the kingdom of Yahweh, then I invite you to come over here to my right up on the stage and I will shake your hand and welcome you into the kingdom of Yahweh. In early February of 82, we, me and my wife, we were asked by Yahweh Ben Yahweh to become full-time workers and me and my wife agreed that we wanted to work full-time for the temple. And so we gave up our jobs, school, whatever we had going on. And uh, we joined the Nation of Yahweh as full-time workers. That's Khalil Amani, a former Nation of Yahweh member. At that time, it was probably about 40 or 50 of us that, that became full-time workers. What was your job? In the beginning, um, and several jobs. One job was we had a... Uh, Somewhere in 82, we end up buying a bunch of printery equipment because Yahweh Ben Yahweh wanted to make his own Bible, his own books, his own literature and all that stuff instead of having people make it for him. And so one of my jobs was during the day, I was I worked in the printery. Of course, every man, every man had a two-hour guard duty that they did, that we did around the clock seven days a week. So somewhere after, you know, when people go to bed, nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night, you were obligated to get up out of your bed out of the middle out of the middle of the night and do a two hour guard duty, where you just sat on the front door and the front the front of the temple had a foyer, and you just sat there and watched the street at night for two hours, because you definitely you basically worked, you basically worked sixteen hours, and then with the two hour guard duty, so you worked about eighteen hours a day. Publicly, at his Temple of Love, Yahweh Ben Yahweh preaches peace and morality. 
We love all moral men. And I teach you to be moral. Oh, glory. To be blessed, we must be ethical. And the definition of ethics is a system of moral principles. A system means an order, a method, a truthful, mathematical, sequential fact. Ethics deals with the rules of conduct that all civilized people of the earth recognize. But Khalil says his preachings contain cryptic messages that are understood by his flock. Did you hear him talk about bring me the ear of a white devil? Um, indirectly, yes. Yahweh ben Yahweh uses, he uses, he used coded words. Um, he used a word called Azazel. Azazel is a Hebrew word that means scapegoat. And he basically taught that in our own land, we'd have these goats that we would bring once a year and we'd kill them for the sins of Israel. But he took it further and said that white people were the new goats. And he says that the proof of a kill is to bring back the head of the Azazel. And we knew that the Azazel was not a goat because we were not in our land with goats. The Azazel was the white man. So the language was very coded, but we clearly understood what he meant when he would say those kinds of things. And so, yes, the answer is yes. He said ears and heads and all that kind of stuff. And you can't leave the West without the white man's permission. Oh, no. Try it. You bad. Jump on up and leave America without the white people's permission. You won't get back in. What is it called? What is white people's permission to leave America called? Passport. Visa. <laughs> Local 10 and Local10.com presents the Florida Files, I'm Michelle Solomon, and this is the story of Yahweh Ben Yahweh and Miami's Temple of Love, Cult or Conspiracy? So I fit two qualifications already. The two listed, I fit them both. The garment down to the foot, the woolly hair. Something funny about his eyes. His eyes were as a flame of fire. Come look in my eyes. As soon as you get a chance, you look in my eyes, you'll see every color in fire there is. My eyes are exactly like this book says. Now, the three perfect descriptions are mine to perfection. Hak Moshe, Yahweh ben Yahweh, proves to his followers that he is the Son of God, 
But as he proclaims his power, more than a dozen members decide to break off and create a temple of their own. Khalil says the former members returned frequently to the temple to taunt Yahweh. Yahweh ben Yahweh had talked vociferously about killing people. I mean, he had talked about, you know, the hypocrites got to die. I just didn't believe it was going to be a literal thing that had happened. So those the hypocrites were coming and what he quote-unquote called the hypocrites were coming and, and taunting and, and shooting at the temple and stuff? Yes. The hypocrites, one night they had come by with a gun and they even stopped, they even pulled into the parking lot and one of the guys says, where's Akmoshe? Bring that faggot out. And, you know, Akmoshe, believe it or not, actually came out. And we kind of grabbed him and kind of pushed him back in the door. And, you know, they started, they didn't shoot at us. They kind of shot up in the air and let us know they had weapons. And those are things that, you know, led up to, you know, the murders of Ashton Green. And so they weren't altogether blameless themselves. I know it doesn't come out in the media like that, but um, that's what it was. It was kind of a war. They were, they, they, they brought it to us. We just so happened to get the best of them. Publicly, Yahweh's were noticed in their white robes. They carried canes. And privately, residents and police investigators were hearing horror stories about the Yahweh. Eyewitness News 10's Mel Taylor reports on crimes that were committed against some of the former Yahweh's who had gone against their leader. And they shot him. They shot him. I remember maybe two shots ringing out, and I screamed. Mildred Banks knows about violence. Today, some nine years after she was shot, she still carries a bullet in her side. One day, in 1981, her North Dade home became a house of death. Banks and her husband, Carlton Carey, had just returned from talking with police about another Yahweh member who had been decapitated. But when they entered the home, they knew something was wrong. In 1986, she spoke with Eyewitness News. I remember coming to and seeing them drag Michelle out. And I remember saying to myself, they are going to cut his head off. And I remember saying to myself, I gotta get help, but the phones were down. Carlton Carey, an accountant, and Mildred Banks, a postal worker, go to the police. Carey wants to tell them that he believes Yahweh ben Yahweh ordered the beheading of their roommate, Aston Green, who was found dead and dumped in the Everglades, his head severed by what police believe is a machete. Detective Steve Roadruck goes to interview Mildred Banks in the hospital. I think it was 81, 82, that's when the first murders occurred, and I, you know, as I say, I was in homicide working the case. And John King had the very first homicide, and then um, he had interviewed roommates of the his homicide victim, and then they went they were they went home that night, and then they were ambushed, and then. Um, Carlton Carey was killed, and Mildred Banks was, you know, severely injured. I remember going to the hospital, and it's Miami here National Hospital, to interview Mildred, just to just to get whatever we could get right away because, you know, she was severely injured. And I remember being there in the emergency room, and uh, you know, they helped. They showed her neck, and it was like almost completely chopped off. And then she was shot, and I remember a emergency room doctor coming in, shoving her by the side, and 
poking something in her ribs, which relieved a lot of blood. She was actually drowning in her own blood, but he saved her life that way. So we, you know, we kind of, we, you know, she was in the hospital. We assigned a bunch of uniformed guards to, uh, you know, our police officers to guard her. And then eventually when she was able to speak to us, you know, we interviewed her as much as we could, but she couldn't identify anybody because they were all wearing masks. We knew who the bad people were. We knew they came out of the temple. And, you know, Meldrick would give us a lot of information about the goings-on in the temple and how they were disillusioned with what was going on. And so we just tried to build a case. We tried to get a search warrant for the temple, but I don't think that was successful. We, I remember we did go into the temple, and I believe it might have been with some building inspectors or something like that. You know, we were able to go in with them. But Hugh and Mitchell and uh, his cronies, they weren't, they weren't cooperating. They weren't talking or anything. So do you remember some of the things that Mildred told you when she was able to, just about what was going on in there? You know, just general, it's been so long that I think she mentioned that uh, there was sexual abuse, uh, possibly some sexual abuse of young girls uh, inside the, the temple by Helen Mitchell. Um, and just the indoctrination, the tapes, uh, the... Uh, the, the media stuff that he would hand out to his followers, you know, hating the white men and that there were cassette tapes about his speeches. And, you know, we were trying to grab everything we could about him and, and what he was espousing at the time. And, um, you know, the case didn't really break until the Opelaka, uh killings. Road Ruck and another detective, John King, go to the Temple of Love, where they notice green carpet. It is the same green carpet that was found at the scene of Aston Green's beheading. Khalil Amani says he sees the Yahweh's wrap Aston Green in carpet the night they beat him and put him in the trunk of a car. They have his head wrapped up in some green carpet, some carpet, extra carpet that we had in the temple, and then they had masking tape around the carpet. So basically, we're suffocating him, but I could hear him still mumbling. I could hear his moans under the carpet. So I knew he wasn't dead yet. is killed on November 12, 1981. On November 14th, Carrie and Banks go to the police. They tell them they fear for their lives. Early the next morning, as they arrive at their Carroll City home, they are ambushed. Khalil Amani says it's clear soon after both incidents that the temple is being watched. After those events happened, you know, it was a kind of a weird time because we were being watched by the police and we saw them, you know, from the sky with the helicopters and with the undercover people driving by slow and it's just before noon on Tuesday, October 28, 1986. Two white limousines, several cars, and the now recognizable Yahweh Greyhound buses pull up to a rundown apartment complex in Opalaka. Residents of the complex tell the news media that about 75 Yahwehs descend on the apartments. 
They are there to clean out the building that the nation of Yahweh has purchased, and they are going to do whatever it takes to evict anyone who won't leave. It turns into a very tense two-day standoff between the Yahweh's and tenants, with 22 Yahweh members standing guard with six-foot-long wooden staffs and walkie-talkies. Two residents are interviewed on television, and they're defiant. They later get into a confrontation after Yahweh's enter one of the man's apartments and carries out a refrigerator. The men struggle with the Yahweh's until they get it back. Danny Borrego worked in the Homicide Division as an investigator for the Miami-Dade Police Department, and he responded that day to a call of shots fired at the apartments on the second day of the standoff. Um, so uh, we get a double homicide in the city of Opalaka. So the Opalaka case, um, what happened was uh, the, the Yahweh's had uh, purchased uh, um, an apartment complex in Opalaka. It was a rundown uh, apartment building, and the Yahweh's during that time period were in the process of a major uh, rebuilding, uh, fixing up uh, old hotels, apartment buildings, and they were buying, you know, dilapidated uh, apartments and making them new again. So the city of Miami was probably pretty happy with that. Grocery one. store, there was a hotel on uh, Biscayne Boulevard that, that they, they really did a great job with it. They cleaned it up and uh, they, they were in the process of doing this uh, at this apartment complex in Opalaka. But there was people still living in, these, in some of these apartments. So they used less than legal means to evict the people out of these apartments. Uh, there's a legal method, obviously, to you know, have people evicted uh, or even from these apartments that were condemned. So uh, they were just coming in uh, with large containers and emptying out apartments, whether somebody was living in there or not. So there was a big uproar among the, the remaining residents who still occupied those apartments. And uh, I remember the news media being out there, um, and they interviewed even a couple of our next, you know, our potential victims. They interviewed them on camera. Uh, you know, showing their displeasure about how the Yahweh's had been coming in and basically strong-arming them out of their out of their homes. The victims, 37-year-old Rudolph Broussard and Anthony Brown, apparently argued with Yahweh members just hours before they were found shot several times in the head and back. <laughs> Witnesses say sometime after midnight, a green car entered the complex. There was a confrontation and shots rang out. Broussard died at the scene. Brown was heard pleading for his life as he tried to escape. Sources say he was shot once in the back, then three more times in the head. He died two hours later at Jackson Memorial. Police have impounded the car with several white robes in the back seat. It's a shame. It isn't work. We're black. Look, the skin color, same as mine. Why? Why did y'all do it? Is it worth it now? Are you happy? At the scene, Metro-Dade police found this unidentified man hiding in a field close by. He was wearing the familiar white turban worn by Yahweh members. After paying nearly half a million dollars for the complex, the Yahweh's wanted everybody out. Broussard and Brown were two residents who verbally refused to go. That was Eyewitness News 10's Vicki Frazier reporting from the scene. Borrego says there are other recent killings that have been puzzling police, but now these shootings might hold the answers to those crimes too. 
a gun found at the scene is linked to one of Borrego's cases, where a man sleeping in a car behind a bar is found dead. Uh, when the two tenants, you know, were being forcibly evicted out of the apartments in, in Opalaka, and we, we were the ones that made the, the connection or the tie-in with the Yahweh's and the ear cases. So Raymond Kelly uh, was found um, stabbed to death in his car behind the parking lot of the TP lounge. He, he was found in the back seat, kind of sprawled uh, as if someone had fallen asleep in the back seat of the car with his legs hanging outside the rear door. Uh, he so had the door was open. The door was open. So he was found, uh, found there by you know, some people. Uh, multiple stab wounds and then of course what made it different was that his ears both ears had been severed uh, one of the ears was actually discovered and found on the scene uh, uh, was outside the, the car outside the car and the other one was was missing uh, so that that was the, the case that I uh, was assigned to what did you to, first uh, think of somebody having their ears severed right. so what, that's you know totally weird you know totally unusual I had never seen it even though I had been in homicide you know seasoned investigator for some time it's stuff, it's stuff that you always used to hear about I used to hear things about this in Vietnam we used to hear that in Vietnam they used to you know to prove that you had killed somebody you know they used to cut people's ears off I mean this is just stuff that I had heard about but usually it was indicative of some sort of a, either a ritualistic type of a killing or uh, as a souvenir uh, of some sort either it could have been a serial killer or as proof that you had gone out and killed something uh, and what we learned is that that night he had drunk drank a little bit too much and he went into his car to sleep it off and that's where we found him the next day wrong place wrong time wrong place wrong time um, so uh, the only thing that was other other than the ears is that we were told that Mr. Kelly kept a gun, a revolver inside of his glove compartment at all times. Uh, during the right after the shooting incident, where Rudy and the other gentleman get get shot, there's a car description that was that was put out by the Opalaka Police Department, and they ended up stopping the car about a couple blocks north of where the apartment complex was. The guy that was inside the car took off running and was hiding in some bushes and they ended up apprehending him. So what we did find though is, like I said, in furthering that crime scene, in the area where he was uh, apprehended, hiding in the bushes, we found uh, two guns, two uh, weapons that were disposed of right near the area where he was hiding. Uh, one of them turned out to be the murder weapon used in the Opalaka case that killed the two victims. And the other weapon, coincidentally enough, was the gun that had been stolen from Raymond Kelly back in South Miami only a month before. A uh, aha moment as we call it, you know, that was like, oh, wait a minute, we're, we're onto something here. So um, we then compared the fingerprints of Robert Rozier to fingerprints that were taken or lifted from the vehicle of Raymond Kelly in South Miami. So we, we positively identified Robert Rozier's fingerprints on the outside window, driver's window, if I'm not mistaken, of Mr. Kelly's car. So now we have him on the scene of the murder, you know, with a fingerprint, and we have him in possession, technically, of the gun. So we had a good circumstantial case that he and Yahweh's were possibly involved with this, with these ear cases. Roadruck says law enforcement was very suspect of the nation of Yahweh for five years, even before the Opalaka apartment double homicide. 
I had somebody tell me Rosier was just a psychopath and he was just doing it all on his own. Well, you know, the, the, uh, first I think it's stupid, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they, the guys put together a pretty good investigation. We knew where it was coming from. We knew you and Mitchell were homicides. There's no doubt in our minds at all. And, um, you know, it's just from what Mildred was telling us and what we gathered and what happened, you know, after that, uh, there's just no doubt in my mind, 100%, that, you know, he was involved in ordered these uh, these hits. Six months before the Opelaka incident, there's a firebombing in Delray Beach, Florida, 45 miles away from the Temple of Love, and the nation of Yahweh is tied to that. On May 18, 1986, a street fight involving the Yahwehs and some neighborhood kids leaves some of the Yahwehs bloodied and beaten. About 20 Yahweh members, mostly women and children, are preaching door to door when they are attacked. Witnesses tell police that two nights later, Molotov cocktails are thrown through windows and they burn about a half dozen homes. Three people are injured, including a young girl. Benyahweh knows he's under scrutiny. He gets big-time lawyer Ellis Rubin, who creates a media blitz. The once-quiet Akmoshe is now opening his doors to media. He even invites reporters into his private office. Uh, we've had past instances of uh, one of our sisters was attacked uh, with a machete. Her neck was almost cut. I mean, it was cut. Terrible lacerations. He had to be put in the hospital. She was pregnant, still is. Um, her arms were cut with the machete. This woman was trying to kill her, decapitate her, without cause. We called the police. We filed charges. The state attorney's office said, you don't want to bring charges against this old lady. Until this day, they won't bring it to court. Nothing has happened to the lady. We've done nothing, we did nothing to her then, nor since. And nothing has been done, but we have no justice in the case. If we were violent people, she certainly wouldn't be here. And she obviously tried to cut her head off. She'd have had it cut off with her own machete. Any motivation for this? Uh... None, except she just came out of her yard into the street and did this. Was your sister in robes and clothes? Yes, yes, in white. Uh, we have another, it's a little small case, they call it brawling, but nevertheless, in Riviera Beach, um, just a few short months ago, a woman sicked her dogs out of her turn, opened her gate, sicked her dogs on us almost a block away from her house. The dogs attacked us. Some of our brothers kicked the dogs away. When they kicked the dogs away, this woman and her family came out down the block, attacked us, and some of her sons and different people came and joined. We did nothing, the police came. While the police were standing there, I think it was reported her son, one of her sons, kept charging and attacking our sisters and brothers. The police did nothing. So he finally made a lunge at one of our brothers and he hit him and knocked him to the ground. Guess who went to jail? 
our brother, Fifth Israel. It appears that the nation of Yahweh is beginning to split at the seams. Residents of the Opalaka apartments win in court when a judge rules that the sect had waged a campaign of extortion and terror against them. They have to sell one of their properties to pay the judgment. Meanwhile, City of Miami inspectors are on their case too, and they're finding ways to crack down on the Temple of Love for code violations. But the most damaging to Yahweh Ben Yahweh? is the man the police find hiding in the bushes at the Opalaka shootings. It's Neariah Israel, a Yahweh member whose real name is Robert Ernest Rozier, and he's charged with involvement in a number of crimes. Most likely under the Council of Reuben, Yahweh ben Yahweh announces a press conference. He is going to publicly announce that he is excommunicating Robert Rozier from the nation of Yahweh. Welcome you here, Temple of Yahweh. I thank y'all temple headquarters with a threat of extortion and blackmail. He said that the state has been making him offers and they believe that he has a lot of things locked up in his head. They want bigger fish and feel that he can give them bigger fish. He said Reuben was given at a higher price and he picked an attorney at a cheaper price. He said the state feels that he has enough in his head where he could buy his life. He said that if he goes into court and is given a public defender, then that means the temple of love does not care. The temple would then prove that they are no longer the rock and have disassociated themselves from him. He further said that if his rock turns into a sponge, then he too would become a sponge. He said Yahweh is a man of war and that he wants to see war. He said that if Yahweh is faithful, then he will be faithful. He said his life is at stake and they want to kill him. Robert Rozier's effort to extort and blackmail us to furnish him another attorney to bow to his will or else he will make up fictitious charges against us is criminal in the sight of God Yahweh and in the sight of all moral men of the earth and has been reported to the state attorney's office this day, June 10th, 1987. This man, Robert Rozier, has sinned a great sin by attempting blackmail and extortion against the nation of Yahweh to bow to his will for an attorney of his choice or to threaten that he will say damaging things against the son of Yahweh and the disciples of Yahweh. This is a criminal act within itself. I hereby excommunicate Robert Rozier, also known as Nehemiah Israel, and take the Lamb's Book of Life in the sight of the world and blot out Robert Ernest Rozier, Jr., also known as Neariah Rehoboam Israel, out of the Book of the Living. So be it. I thank you, the members of the press, for coming out.
to get the truth today. Thank you. Coming up next on The Florida Files, who put out a hit on Hulon Mitchell Jr. when he was a minister with the Nation of Islam? Plus, was a karate expert bludgeoned and beaten inside the Temple of Love? And hear from a cult expert in his take on the Nation of Yahweh. Join me, Michelle Solomon, for the next edition of The Florida Files, Yahweh Ben Yahweh, Cult or Conspiracy? Get more of the story and online extras, including archived video and photos at local10.com. Are you a fan of the Florida Files? Tell us what you love about the series on Apple Podcasts and join other fans in leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.